0: Um, I think it's good to leave a place before you're asked to leave a place uh, so I thought this book would be a good way to, to exit that was my exit strategy uh, was I would go out with this book um, and interesting you mentioned uh, Russia because I'm not going to mention Russia or the Soviet Union at all and this is maybe the first talk that I'll ever give where I won't mention the one area I've spent the past 40 years watching Um I do want to mention, though, a book that is coming out in March or April, not mine, uh, a book by uh, someone who is considered one of our leading diplomatic historians uh, who has an attachment to Ohio, not necessarily this institution, but a neighboring institution. Uh, His name is uh, John Gaddis. He's at Yale University. And I I hate to do this because I haven't read the book, but I've seen an interview with Gaddis and I saw his article on foreign policy And I find his thesis so objectionable, and it's uh, formed uh, some of my thinking that I want to talk to you about. The book is called uh, Security, Surprise, and the American Experience. And I think uh, Gaddis is going to put his reputation seriously at risk with this book, because the book is a defense of the Bush uh, national security strategy. And in his argument... um, he says that this will be the third, considered the third great era of grand strategy in American uh, history, comparing it to the uh, early 19th century, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, and then the period uh, World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and the 50 years uh, of containment. And Gaddis wrote a very interesting book on containment that I'm sure some of you know, the Strategies of Containment. Uh, His argument is that uh, 9-11 changed everything. We will never go back to the world uh, that we knew. Um, And my argument is going to be in counter to Gaddis, and in in my book, is that it would be very dangerous to leave uh, the policies that worked for us for 50 years that I think have application for the world we're in, and even though the world to some degree Uh, Is different. It's not a radical uh, transformation. American security ultimately is not threatened by al-Qaeda and the kinds of terrorism uh, we're seeing. I'm not saying that we don't have security issues and problems, but it doesn't threaten the vitality of American society or American uh, policy. Gaddis, in this book, argues that all of the parts of the Bush strategy are working. Um... I don't believe that they are, and I would use Iraq as an example to show uh, that there is no strategic thinking in the Gaddis approach or in the Bush uh, foreign policy. Uh, He thinks that democracy in the Middle East is not only feasible, he thinks it's part of the uh, Bush program. Uh, I would argue that it's a rationalization for what we did. I have talked to at least a dozen people who were involved in the debates before we went into Iraq, and they've all assured me that the word democracy never came up in the discussion of why we were going to war in Iraq. That's totally a a post-war justification to try to explain uh, what I consider a major policy failure. And finally, Gaddis argues that America's global position is stronger uh, as a result of Iraq, and I believe that it's weaker. Now, let me go into what I consider the Bush foreign policy and why it's so dangerous. And I will get to intelligence by way of saying that we are involved in the worst intelligence scandal this history has ever witnessed, and it's a direct result of Iraq, and that's why I think um, these are parts of the same uh, same problem. What Bush has done in a couple of years is overturned uh, basic instruments of American thinking and American foreign policy uh, making, and these would be uh, arms control and disarmament, uh, the turn toward unilateralism, and away from multilateralism, the emphasis on preemptive attack, which is very dangerous. And if you study the defense budgets closely, and particularly defense doctrine and the statements of the Bush administration, defense planning guidance, the national security strategy over the last couple of years, uh, you can see these are fundamentally different from what the United States did in a bipartisan way for 50 years with great success that helped to win or uh, bring the end to the Cold War in a peaceful way. I guess we shouldn't talk about winning the Cold War because that in itself is a loaded uh, term. Uh, Let me start with arms control and disarmament. Uh, I think people forget that we have a long, rich history of arms control in this country, and that arms control wasn't just some idealistic principle. It was done to improve the security position and the strategic position of the United States over uh, a long period of time. What this administration has done is to walk away from arms control. So if you look at all of the key Uh, officers, uh, positions in the Bush administration at State, at NSC, at the Pentagon, they're occupied by people who've been not only critics of arms control, they've worked against arms control for the last 20, 30 years. Uh, My favorite is at the State Department, John Bolton, who was at the Heritage Foundation for 20, 30 years working against arms control. You have to ask yourself, why in the world would Secretary of State Colin Powell take us as arms control Uh, assistant secretary, a man who's still opposed to arms control. But this is true at NSC, Bob Joseph. Uh, It's true at the Pentagon Douglas uh, fight. And if you look at the steps of the Bush administration, uh, the abrogation of the ABM uh, treaty... Uh, I was on the SALT-1 delegation in 71-72, so I have a certain feeling for the ABM Treaty. I knew how hard it was to negotiate the ABM Treaty uh, with the Soviets and within the government. You know, the internal negotiation of agreements is far more interesting than the external negotiation. That's the story that never gets told. We're pretty good at diplomatic history. We're not very good at dealing with the politics of very sensitive issues, such as uh, arms control. Abrogating ABM, Uh, I think was a disastrous backward step, and particularly because it was abrogated to make way for the National Missile Defense. So we're now deploying a system that doesn't work. Uh, And if you look at this year's defense budget, the largest single item for a weapon system is for NMD, uh, over $10 billion for a system uh, that's been dumbed down, the tests have been dumbed down, the Pentagon isn't sharing evaluation data uh, with the Congress. Senator Carl Levin is the only one trying to make a big uh, issue out of this. Uh, but this, again, is a, a step backward to deploy a system uh, that is threatening to, the, to uh, strategic stability uh, and ultimately uh, does not work. Uh, walking away from the Comprehensive Test Ban uh, Treaty, um, this administration is never going to submit that treaty for ratification. Uh, the Clinton administration didn't handle Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty very well, and the Clinton administration had trouble in handling certain uh, foreign policy issues. There's no question about that. There was too much seat-of-the-pants policy making in the Clinton administration. But comprehensive test ban was important, particularly for the United States, which is so far out in front strategically uh, that we would be the major country to gain in terms of counterproliferation policy. This would be a major uh, uh, step to have in your arsenal to keep other countries from testing. We had India and Pakistan ready to accept the Non-Proliferation Treaty if we signed on to the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. That alone would have been uh, a step forward, leaving Israel as the only nuclear state that is not part of the nonproliferation uh, uh, regime. Uh, and now we're talking about an administration that wants to get back to research and development of low-yield uh, nuclear weapons, uh, bunker busters, as if you could fight on a battlefield where you use low-yield uh, nuclear weapons. This is certainly a, a retrograde Uh, steps. So I think the Bush administration has been a disaster in this area of arms control and disarmament. Unilateralism, enough I guess has been said about this, You know, it's it's kind of ironic that the one area of the world where we could do some good unilaterally, and we even have countries such as China and Russia and South Korea urging us to go unilateral to sit down with the North Koreans and get something done in terms of ending the North Korean nuclear program. That's the one area where we say, no, it's got to be multilateral. Uh, Nowhere else do we talk about multilateralism, and we certainly didn't talk about it in in the case of uh, Iraq. Uh, Unilateralism is dangerous because if you look at what I consider the two most important national security problems, uh, terrorism and proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, we're not going to solve those problems unilaterally. You know, we're not going to solve these problems with military uh, force. They're going to be solved the old-fashioned way, intelligence, diplomacy, uh, multilateral. Uh, foreign policy. So unilateralism, I think, is extremely dangerous. Uh, Preemptive attack, and I don't think enough attention was given to this when uh, George Bush made his speech at West Point, the graduation um, uh, address in June of 2002, where he talked about uh, preemptive attack, which is something Wolfowitz uh, has always uh, favored going back to his days in the Pentagon in 1991, 1992. We've just seen how dangerous that is. The idea that you can go to war with intelligence. I worked in the intelligence uh, community for about 25 years, counting my work at CIA and the State Department. You know, intelligence isn't a picture. Uh, Intelligence may be a mosaic, uh, missing some of the stones and some of the stones aren't where they should be. It allows you to step back and get an idea of what the picture might be, or to argue about what the picture is, or as some people says, it's really a bunch of ink spots. It's not even a mosaic, but it's certainly not a picture. And intelligence rarely is going to provide the information you're gonna to need to make a preemptive attack. And I'll get in a few minutes to how we've misused intelligence in what I consider a campaign of deceit by the White House to take intelligence, to use misinformation and disinformation to build a case uh, to go to war. But anyway, preemptive attack is extremely uh, dangerous. And finally, if you look at um, defense spending, we're up to over $400 billion. If you do a straight line uh, projection, we'll be over $500 billion by the end of this decade. We can't afford it. I mean, we can kid ourselves and say we can afford it, but we couldn't afford it in the 1980s when Reagan from 81 to 86 uh, entered The most aggressive defense spending in peacetime, creating huge deficits, and basically politicizing the intelligence on the Soviet Union. You know, if you want to know why the CIA got it wrong in the 1980s, and they did, Uh, and I'm not talking about the failure to uh, predict the the dissolution of the Soviet Union, no one did that, but not to be able to see the weakness, there were analysts who saw it, a handful, uh, who had the story right, who couldn't get this intelligence material out of the building because of the politics of intelligence. Uh, policy uh, to defend uh, the Reagan uh, defense budgets, and in terms of defense doctrine, uh, all the statements I talked about uh, Bush at West Point 2002. But it's worthwhile to go back to the to the National Security Strategy from September 2002, go back to defense planning Guidance. Compare it to Wolfowitz's uh, document in '91 that was leaked to the LA Times that had to be pulled back because it was such an embarrassment to the Bush the elder. Uh, administration. All of this was about dominance, about the dominant military and what the United States was going to do. It was a very triumphal document in 91, 92, and the tone of the Bush, the younger administration statements on defense are also triumphal, exceptionalist uh, kinds of documents that are very dangerous in terms, I think, of mindset, the kinds of risks you're taking are the kinds of beliefs you have in the role of military power. I, for one, do not think that America's advantage in terms of our position around the world has anything to do with the fact that we have an unequaled military capacity. The rest of the world knows that. Uh, We don't have to keep reminding the world about how powerful we are. I mean, these are smart people. They're sophisticated people. If America has any influence around the world, it's because of an acceptance of what our intentions are or a belief in our, our credibility. Well, we've just thrown that out the window, as far as I'm concerned, uh, in Iraq and in the way we went to war uh, in Iraq. Um, so that, that's my problem with John Lewis Gaddis, who maybe has nothing to do with this, but I was just reading uh, a review of his book in the Boston Globe, and it annoyed me. So I thought I would try it <laughs> out. And, uh, I mean, why do we do what we do? Is we write letters to the editor or we get annoyed or op-eds when we get annoyed or we come out to Ohio and we get talks when we get annoyed? Um... And that explains where I'm coming from on the Bush foreign policy, which I do think is is putting the world at risk, which is also the subtitle of Bush League Diplomacy. Uh, This failure that we're seeing in Iraq has now taken in the intelligence business, and so I want to take a few minutes now to talk about uh, the role of intelligence. Uh, And the question that is asked in Washington, I don't know where else, but the Washington spin on the intelligence Scandal or the intelligence problem, whatever you think it is. I mean, we do have a major major problem I think everyone would agree to that But the question is was it the White House or was it the CIA? Well, it's not an either-or question. It's both Uh, We know how the CIA misused the intelligence and those of you who are students out there If you want to have some fun and do an interesting paper uh, I'll give you four documents if you haven't seen them. You ought to track down. They're all on the uh, internet and do your own analysis and see what you come up with. Go back to the CIA website and get the October 2002 National Intelligence Estimate on uh, Iraq and weapons of mass destruction. Then jump forward to the State Department website February uh, 2003, February the 5th. Colin Powell gave his uh, speech at the UN um, that the the media just loved. They they were just blown away by this incredible case uh, for war. No one at the UN was. The international community uh, didn't believe it. But our media just... Uh, loved it. That speech, by the way, was written at the CIA. He spent three or four days at the CIA. The first draft that he had gotten came from Dick Cheney's office. And I think you've seen the quote. Uh, I read things like Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone magazine and Colin Powell got this draft and according to Rolling Stone, said, this is bullshit. I've got to get a draft. that I can deliver at the UN. So he went out to the CIA and um, they provided a draft for him that he, he worked on. I mean, he it just it wasn't handed to him. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of Colin Powell in that speech, too, in terms of his own uh, beliefs and his own uh, arguments. Then go to the UN website and get, uh, and this was about March uh, the 5th, it was a month after Colin Powell's speech, uh, Mohamed ElBaradei, the Egyptian who leads the International Atomic Energy Agency, gave a report card on the Powell speech, and, and Powell's grades were not very good, I'll tell you that. Uh, the press buried, you know, they gave pages and pages of coverage to Colin Powell. They buried Al Bardi um, inside in the New York Times and the Washington Post in what was a very perceptive uh, report. But if, if that's not to your liking, just go back to the CIA website October 2003 and get David Kaye's preliminary report. And if you hold Colin Powell on one side of, the, of your desktop and you put uh, David Kaye on the other, And you look at the 29 charges and allegations that Colin Powell made and then compare to to what David Kay found with 1,400 people, the Iraq survey group, Powell is left naked. I mean, there's nothing left to uh, these charges. And when it gets to the October 2002 National Intelligence Estimate, the executive summary, all in terms of the first two pages of conclusions, all made with high confidence that was the CIA's term for these conclusions. Uh, David Kaye just rips all of this uh, apart. And then finally, a a very good account, if you go to the Carnegie Endowment website, um, the report they did in in January of uh, this year on WMD is quite good. And if you don't have the sitzfleisch to go through the whole report, pull out the four pages that go through textual comparisons of what the intelligence community said about biological weapons and chemical weapons and nuclear weapons, particularly nuclear reconstitution, which was the phoniest argument the administration put forward, Um, and then missile capabilities. Those four charts are are worth a lot in terms of your ability to argue your way and think your way through um, these issues. So the CIA has a lot to answer for. The public relations offensive they're on, which included a speech by the director of CIA, George Tenet, at his alma mater, I thought that was cute. You know, you're there introduced by the president of the university and you're allowed this forum that he never should have saw, let alone been given, because the Senate and the House are about to come out with their own studies on CIA intelligence. And I can tell you now, I've talked to staffers, it's going to be devastating. And i will not even talk about the various uh, commissions that have been set up that are looking at CIA intelligence over this period of time. This is a serious, serious scandal. There's just no, no question about it. You, you cannot be that bad uh, without begging questions, not only of confidence, but integrity. You know, it's one thing to be wrong. Uh, 9-11 was an intelligence failure. We were wrong. Assumptions were wrong from both CIA and FBI. No one is charging politicization. This is reminiscent of the Soviet intelligence problem, where there was politicization of intelligence. But this was intelligence used to go to war and this gets into the, the role of the White House in terms of what I call the uh, campaign of deceit. And if you go down and look at every key member uh, of the White House community, from the president on down, everyone misled the American people uh, about why we were going to war. And let me say, when you go to war over a nightmare scenario, Uh, I think this is very dangerous. worst casing a problem as a justification for going to war will often get you into trouble. And I think it was Lord Salisbury in in Britain who once said, you go to war for ideals. Uh, You have an ideal or an ideal that you're trying to um, defend. To go to war for a nightmare, I think that was his word uh, is very dangerous. And I think that's what we did in the case of Iraq. We went to war over a nightmare scenario. You know, think about it, 9-11, Terrorists turned a commercial airliner into a cruise missile. Now you have Saddam Hussein, this very evil man, and I'm not, I'm not trying to defend Saddam Hussein uh, in any of this. He has weapons of mass destruction. Uh, the Iraqis and the terrorists get together, Al Qaeda. So there were links in in the president's mind and in the minds of most Americans. If you see public opinion polls, 70% of all Americans actually believe that Saddam Hussein had something to do with 9/11. believe that Saddam Hussein had links to Al-Qaeda. And then, of course, the whole argument about what we were going to find in Iraq, which, of course, uh, we didn't find. Uh, And we didn't find it because they moved it to Syria, which is the Israeli interpretation that Mossad is trying to sell in Washington and has had some uh, impact in doing that. Uh, We didn't find it because it wasn't there. The UN should have its report out, um, I think, tomorrow, saying uh, it was mostly destroyed by 1994 that's we're talking about a decade ago uh, the worst that the president did was of course the State of the Union the message uh, the famous 16 words based on a forgery a fabrication that Iraq was trying to get uh, uranium yellow cake from an African country Niger uh, we knew that was a forgery we meaning most people in Washington knew that was a forgery at the time we had sent a retired American ambassador out there Joe Wilson to look into it because Wilson not only was a diplomat with experience in Africa uh, in that kind of political situation, his retirement job which happens to be with a, a uranium uh, exploration company in Washington, so he knows the industry. The Joint Chiefs of Staff weren't inclined to believe Wilson as a diplomat, little military civilian tension and all of this. They sent out a four star general, Marine general, came back with the same conclusion. State Department thought, well, maybe they ought to have their person look into it, so they sent the ambassador to look into this situation. Same conclusion. Fabrication, uh, forgery, has no, uh, it's not realistic. Uh, and the White House knew this at the time, and the CIA, to its credit, because uh, I know the person who tried to convince Bob Joseph at the NSC staff, get that accusation out of uh, the speech. And the reply from Bob Joseph was, well, what if we say we've learned from the British? And I can't document this, but if I were the CIA person, my guess is he probably said, look, if you want to attribute it to the British, I don't give a damn what you say. (laughs) You say anything you want to say. Uh, And that's exactly, I think, uh, what happened. So the the president makes this accusation. At the same time, you have the National Security Advisor running around talking about uh, mushroom clouds that we can't wait for the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. Now, what better way is there to scare the American people than to talk about a reconstituted nuclear capability in the wake of 9-11? Let's face it. Uh, I live in Washington. I've got a couple of children and all my grandchildren in New York. I go back and forth. Washington and New York still think about 9-11 quite a bit. I don't know how much thought is given to it in Ohio. I don't. But you can't live in New York without thinking about 9-11 almost every day because you orient yourself in New York City on the World Trade Centers. The fact that they're not there uh, is still overwhelming uh, to people. And I say this because I think there's something really objectionable about using this, um, uh, creating this mood of fear uh, into playing on American anxieties in this way. And I think that was done in the build-up to the war. Uh, The Pentagon played a major role in this because you had a Secretary of Defense, a true believer with regard to Iraq, who set up an Office of Special Plans uh, he wasn't happy with what he was getting from the CIA and made that clear to George Tenet. Rumsfeld, let's face it, is the toughest, toughest bureaucratic player in Washington. Probably one of the toughest bureaucratic players we've seen in Washington over my uh, experience in Washington, going back 35 uh, years. He didn't like what he was getting. It wasn't going far enough. Office of Special Plans was created. Intelligence was created. And the stuff that the CIA wouldn't say, OSP said. And it got into the White House that way. And Rumsfeld also created something, a position that never existed before, an undersecretary of defense for intelligence, Steve Gambone, to try to reign in the intelligence community. I'm going to say something about that uh, in a few minutes. Um, Dick Cheney, probably of all of the true believers, you know, talk about faith-based foreign policy. Dick Cheney is the one who wanted to go after Iraq um, on... Not 9-11, but 9-12, when they met at the National uh, Security Council. Bob Woodward's book, Bush at War, is a very good book in this regard. There's a lot of good first-person stuff in there. Uh, Cheney, I don't think, wanted to fool around with Afghanistan. He wanted to go right to the target. And of course, we have now, to me, what is the greatest self-fulfilling prophecy in recent history, George Bush saying last fall that Iraq is now the center of the war against terrorism. Well, that's interesting. Because before we invaded, Iraq really had nothing to do with terrorism as we uh, know it. There was no terrorism going on in Iraq. Uh, It was a totalitarian state in in some some ways, not in uh, other ways, as we're finding out. Uh, Iraq didn't have ties to al-Qaeda, didn't have ties to terrorist uh, organizations, had nothing to do with 9-11. We didn't capture al-Qaeda types in Iraq before the war. They weren't running around at all. In Iraq before the war, but we're capturing them now, which I find interesting. Now, now they can get in. You know, now the borders are open, and there's no way um, to to really uh, control these people. So this is this is what I call a real self-fulfilling prophecy, and it's compromised the war against terrorism. A lot of military people, again, I teach at the National War College. I spend my days with these people. Uh, knew that we had a job to do in Afghanistan. We basically walked away from that job to go into Iraq. Now, we are moving back in. Uh, I think the criticism has had some uh, impact. We're getting more aggressive in Afghanistan, more numbers. Uh, We'll probably draw down a little bit in Iraq, uh, but don't think those men and women are coming home. They may be going uh, to a neighboring uh, country. Um, So the administration's handling of this uh, was, I think, to take the worst intelligence we had and to give it tremendous display for the American public, and to ignore a lot of very good intelligence, including defector reports, including the debriefings from Saddam Hussein's son-in-law, who told us about the systems that were destroyed uh, in the 1990s. And now we have all this documented by David Kaye, uh, as I say, um, I want to leave uh, nearly a full hour for your discussion, because I think that's the most interesting for, for all of us. Let me say a few things about what needs to be done Um, in three areas. Um, Well, I don't have to say much about the importance of returning to the policies that worked for us throughout the period of containment, throughout the period of the Cold War. As I said before, I think these are the policies that are essential in this day and age we're in. Military power is not going to be effective in countering weapons of mass destruction encountering the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction not going to be effective in fighting terrorists. Uh, this is a battle that's going to be won with very good intelligence, shared intelligence, and very good law enforcement and police work. The Germans learned this in the 1980s against Beider Uh The British have had lessons with IRA. Uh, the Italians learned this against um, the Red Brigades. The Japanese against the Red Army. I think we know this The military weapon is a pretty blunt instrument to use against this kind of activity, which is now an international movement, if you look at the influence of Al-Qaeda around the world, particularly in South Asia uh, and Southeast uh, Asia. So I think multilateralism is important, unilateralism uh, is dangerous. And people who think we can do this on our own from an intelligence standpoint by getting more human agents out of the field, more human assets, more human intelligence, uh, don't understand how difficult that world is and the degree to which we depend on foreign liaison. Think about it. Over the last two years, we have captured very significant numbers of people from the terrorist organizations. Every one from the top, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, for example, every one of them has been with the help and the support and the lead, or a tip, from a foreign liaison source. You know, for people on the Hill to say, we're too dependent on these people, well, it's a fact of life. We need what these people provide for us. We just cannot get it on our own. We're not going to infiltrate terrorist groups, it would be very unusual. We're much too risk adverse for that, and that's not some new phenomenon. The CIA has always been risk-averse. That's why they use the State Department as their cover arrangement, and I can get into that if if you want to talk about things like that. Um, So I think getting back to the old ways of doing business is very important. Uh, I think reforming the intelligence community is essential because I do think intelligence is the key um, to winning the war against terrorism, and I don't even like that term. How 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 can you declare war against the tactic... Uh, it was the wrong way to think about policy and until we start thinking about policy in a different way I think we're going to have a lot of problems uh, in this regard but the intelligence community is essential and several things have to be done Uh, one it's obvious uh, now George Tennant has has problems as the director of Central Intelligence and the director of CIA he has totally worn out his credibility Uh, probably what he should do now is do what one of his predecessors did when he had worn out his credibility on the Hill. He resigned, and he sort of pushed, but that's when Jim Woolsey got out of the position of of DCI. I think Tenet should go now. Now, Bush doesn't want him to leave now because it would show some disarray within his uh, military command, the high command for for war and for uh, planning and thinking about uh, war, but the fact of the matter is he has no... Uh, credibility left on the Hill that is Tenet. And that's a very poor situation for a Director of Central Intelligence to be in. But regardless, whether he stays or goes, and the important point I want to make is not so much whether Tenet should go, uh, it's one person can't do that job. If you look at the Director of Central Intelligence in that position over the last 20 years, it's been 20 years of failure. You're talking about a period of time, Bill Casey, William Webster, Robert Gates, Jim Woolsey, John Deutsch, and now George Tenet. Any organization led by those six individuals for 20 years would turn into an Enron or a WorldCom or a CIA, would have problems, and I genuinely believe that. Those positions must be split. You need a director for central intelligence, that is the, the intelligence community, the 13 agencies and departments that make up the intelligence community. But you need a director For CIA and I would argue you need a director for national intelligence. The one thing missing in all of the failures that I don't think is getting enough attention is that in most cases the collection was pretty good. The collection on the Soviet Union was adequate enough to allow five or six of us to be right about the Soviet Union. We had problems getting our uh, position out which is why I resigned from the CIA in 1986 but that's another story. But the collection was there. The 9-11 collection was quite good. The analysis was dreadful. And we're soon going to learn that when the reports come out and they get declassified. And the collection with regard to Iraq and WMD wasn't bad either. There was a political change in the analysis around October 2002 with no new information, no new data. The line changed about what Iraq really had. And I think investigations will find out why the line changed. But the fact of the matter is, without new information, without new data, which we didn't have from 1998 on, when the UN unwisely left, a lot of people keep saying, including the president, that they were kicked out. No, they weren't kicked out. They made a decision to go home. Saddam Hussein wouldn't let them back in. But that's another uh, story, and it's it's not just a distinction. There's a difference uh, there. But the point is, for four years, we didn't have really new intelligence and good intelligence. But yet we changed our analytical line, our conclusions, our assumptions. And that we have to scrutinize that to find out uh, why. So we, we must separate these positions. Uh, I would argue you even have to separate, but this may be too much like inside baseball for some people. The CIA is made up of direct the Directorate of Operations and the Directorate of Intelligence. These should be two separate organizations. Operations has a lot to do with policy. It's policy-driven. Analysis cannot be policy-driven. Someone's got to be there to tell... Uh, I hesitate to use the word truth because truth is kind of elusive, but someone's got to be able to tell information, give information to the president with the bark still on, stuff that maybe they don't want to hear. That's why Harry Truman created the CIA in 1947 and why he put it in Virginia and not in Washington, get it on the other side of the river, and why it's not part of the policy process, to get it out of the policy process so you don't have a policy axe uh, to grind. And finally, you have to demilitarize the intelligence community. In the last few years, again, particularly under Rumsfeld, who again is this forceful bureaucratic player, the Pentagon essentially runs the intelligence community to the extent anyone does. The intelligence community has a budget of $40 billion. It's made up of 13 agencies or departments. The big ones are all combat support agencies. It's in their charter, National Reconnaissance Office, uh, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the old National um, Imagery and Mapping uh, Agency, and the National Security Agency. You're talking about almost uh, well, more than a third of the intelligence budget with those three uh, agencies. They're beholden to the Pentagon. Now, why is this important? There was a major intelligence failure in 1998 that had policy consequences. It was the Indian nuclear test failure. Frankly, I was shocked, I was at the War College then, I assume that with all the resources that we have, that no country would be able to conduct five tests of nuclear weapons and have the CIA read about it uh, or see it on, I forget whether it was CNN or an AP ticker item, in which they claim that's how they learned about it. But I attribute this intelligence failure to the national, it was then the Imagery and Mapping Agency, and I attribute that to the Pentagon that wasn't interested in South Asia, wasn't interested in India specifically, and wasn't interested in proliferation, You know, the Pentagon is not interested in arms control. Uh, It's agencies that are interested in arms control that worry about proliferation issues because one of the most compelling reasons to justify arms control would be the danger of proliferation. Uh, The Pentagon wants to build weapons. They don't want to be restricted in their ability to build and deploy and procure uh, weaponry. That intelligence failure had policy consequences because it came about the time that the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty was being mishandled I guess by the Clinton administration to be fair Um, and that the uh, treaty was defeated for rejection. The first major national security treaty to be defeated in the Senate going back to World War I Treaty of Versailles League of Nations. I mean this had consequences, very important uh, consequences. Um, So I think you've got to lower the role of the military, enhance the role of the Director of Central Intelligence and do that by Uh, reforming uh, the job Uh, but finally you have to make a change that really has nothing to do with uh, budgetary authority or appropriations priorities programming. You've got to get people into positions of influence who are willing to tell truth to power. That's what the CIA was created for and the greatest failing of the CIA and I guess my greatest regret because I spent actually 24 years there uh, is that there's an unwillingness now to speak truth to power An unwillingness to take on the really tough issues to do what the CIA is for and what has an impact on all of us. All of us who are part of the citizenry of this country who take these issues seriously have to have an interest in that because we must get this right. So that's